Last week we began a, a study looking through the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is one of the hardest books in the New Testament to really understand and study. There's, we don't know who the human instrument God used to pin these words down. And it's really, it doesn't matter. You know, there's arguments, and I've heard people uh, argue vehemently that it's Paul or that it's Luke or that it's Apollos. And it really, it doesn't matter who the human author is because God is the author of the book. God gave us these words. So when we look at the letter of the book of Hebrews, it's not a letter from an apostle or from a disciple to us. It's a letter from God Almighty to His children. And this letter it was written to a group of believers that were struggling with their faith. They were facing persecution. They were facing trials. They were facing uh, temptations. They were dealing with some difficult doctrines they didn't really understand. And a lot of different reasons had caused them to begin to slip in their walk with God. They are having trouble following through in their commitment to Christ. Now, they don't hate God. They don't hate Jesus. They love Jesus. They love God, and they want to follow Him more, but they're just they're having difficulty completely committing to Him. They know that everything they know about Him is true. They're just struggling going all the way with God. And there are some Christians that struggle the same way this morning. Maybe, maybe you're here, and you struggle in your walk with God. You, you wish you were stronger in your faith, but you're just not. You wish your walk with God was more consistent, but it's just... It's hard to have a consistent, faithful, progressive walk with God. You find yourself getting pulled in so many different directions that it's, it's easy to get distracted. And let's just be honest, it's hard to stay committed to a God that's invisible. We can't see God, so He doesn't really get as much attention as He deserves. God doesn't, we don't wake up in the morning and God's not sitting on the end of our bed saying, hey, it's time to spend time with me like our toddler is. Or like our dogs are. God doesn't yell at us like the bill collectors do. So we, it's easy to kind of let our time with him slip. And the writer, he has one message throughout the book of Hebrews that he keeps coming back to over and over and over again. And it is, Jesus is better, so look to Jesus. He says it all the time. He says, but we see Jesus. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, fix your eyes on Jesus. And that's exactly what is happening in chapter number 2. He's finished his introduction, and the writer is telling these believers, look to Jesus because he's better than anything you've ever experienced or anything you could ever have. And he gives us four incredible pictures of who Jesus is. And these four pictures of Christ, if we view them correctly... If we allow them to, to change our view of God, they will change how we walk with God. They can change our faith life with Jesus. So start reading your Bibles in Hebrews chapter 2, starting verse number 5. <clears throat> it says, Friend of the angels, hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak, but one in a certain place, testified, saying, What is man, that thou art mindful of him? Or the Son of Man that thou visits him. Now that phrase right there, but in a certain place testifying, it sounds like he's kind of forgetting, forgotten what it says. It's like, you know, it says somewhere, what is man that thou art mindful of him? But then he quotes Psalms 8 exactly, so he knows where it's talking. And he's not, he's not kind of thinking, now where was it written or where was it said? He's basically what he's saying is, it is known everywhere that the Bible has said 
What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou art mind that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put in all subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Now that, that's an incredible statement that the writer gives us. He is saying Jesus, who created everything, who created the heavens and the earth and everything else we see and, and everything that we, we enjoy, Jesus, when he created all of it, put all of creation under subjection of man. Everything was created for us. The world was created for us. He made it for us. When he placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, he said this, he goes, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the sea, all the fish of the sea and the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. Creation was created for humanity. God created everything, and then he created man and said, you are to control everything. All of creation is put in subjection to man. Then the Bible says God crowned man with glory and honor. But he finishes this verse by saying, we don't see everything under his control right now. He says, everything was created for man. God put everything in, put man over everything, and everything is a subjection to man but that's not how it is. You know, is, is all of creation subject to man? Is, is, is man in control of everything? Of course not. We can barely control our kids, let alone all of creation. In the last century, 100 million people died from unnatural causes that was not related to war or disease. That means 100 million people died by accidents or starvation, or animal attacks. You know how many people hippos kill every year? We're not, we're not putting hippos in our subjection. They are eating us anytime we get near them. We die by animal. You know how many people die on roller coasters? You know like six people a year are killed by vending machines? Now look, if you die by a vending machine, I think you had it coming. And we're just, we're thinning the herd of the dumb people. But... Like six people a year are killed by vending machines. We don't have the world in our subjection. If anything, we're not, we're not on top of the world. The world's on top of us. We don't control anything. We look around and we don't see anything in subjection to man. And that creates a problem for us. Because we should be on top of the world, but we see evil. We see tsunamis. We see hurricanes. We see heartache. We see abuse. And people begin to ask, even believers... Why is there so much pain in the world? Why is there so much hurt in the world? Why is there so much evil going on? That's what these new believers were looking at. They were looking at their life and saying, you know, before Jesus, we, we had it pretty good, and then we accepted Christ as our Savior. We started following him, and now all this persecution is coming. Now my family is getting ostracized for following Christ. Now, now I've been beaten for being a believer, and it doesn't seem like everything's getting better. It doesn't seem like, like God's given me all this great power that I was promised. It doesn't seem like this, that my life's incredible like, like, like they told me it would be. And so they're, they're dealing with these things, and they don't understand why there's so much hurt and pain in the world. They think we are destined for more. So the writer says, we were created to have everything in subjection to us 
but that's not happening yet. Let's keep reading in verse number nine. <coughs> it says, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom, all th- for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. Then skip down to verse number 14. It says, For as much then as the children are, were, are partakers of the flesh and blood, and also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had power uh, of death, that is the devil, and deliver them through fear and death, uh, were all the lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore, in all things it both behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. So in this passage that we just read, Paul is telling us, or not Paul, I'm sorry, Forgive me, again, it's a long day, we're talking Ephesians, I'm in Paul. So the writer here, God, is telling us, look, we, the world is supposed to be in subjection to you, but it's not, and it causes trouble, and it causes pain, and it causes heartache, and it causes people to get discouraged. So stop worrying about all the things that aren't happening the way you think, and look to Jesus, because he is better than anything you could want, or anything you could imagine. And then he gives us four pictures of Christ that proves Jesus is better than anything we could ever ask for. And here's one of the, f- the four pictures. First thing, he is a king that gets involved. Look at verse number nine again. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels. Remember, we, we, he was made man. That the angel, than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. In 1964, in New York City, uh, Kitty Genovese was murdered. And she was out on the street one day, and a mugger attacked her and stabbed her. And when he did, she screamed out, He stabbed me! He stabbed me! And all around, people's lights came on, people started looking out their windows, and people saw what was going on, but no one got involved. No one helped. Now, the attacker, he ran off, but when he noticed no one was helping... Because after a few minutes, a few seconds, people's lights started going off. People started shutting their blinds again. He came back. He dragged her into an alley. He murdered her and stole $49. It was reported that 37 people saw what happened. But nobody got involved. No one got involved. Jesus is a king that gets involved. See, especially during this time... The Israelites were used to kings that didn't care what happened to the people. They didn't care if they were starving as long as the king had his taxes coming in. They didn't care if they didn't have the life they wanted to as long as the king was set up pretty good. And so the king, as long as there was no rebellions or no discord or nothing going on, the king could care less about what happened to his people. He definitely wasn't going to come off of his throne and go down to where the people were and get involved in their life and work for them and help them and encourage them. He definitely wasn't going to give his life for them. But that's exactly what Jesus did. 
Jesus saw how in need we were. And as our king, he stepped down from glory and came down and got involved in our salvation. He didn't just risk his life for us. He laid down his life for us. He tasted death for us. He took the full wrath of God for us because he saw how needy we were. He saw we were condemned to sin and death. He saw we were deserving of it, but he loved us so much, he got involved and took the punishment for us. He's a better king than we could ever ask for. He's a king that gets involved in our lives. We were guilty, but he took our punishment. He gets involved in our problems. He did for us what we could never do. And that was mind-boggling to the Hebrews who were reading this because they were used to kings that didn't care about them. And let's be honest, we're used to politicians that don't care about us. You know, the politicians, when it's election time, they will tell you, I care about you, I'm here to serve you, I'm here to help you. And they'll get in office, and you know who they're going to serve? The companies who give them the most money to vote their way. They don't care about us. They don't care about what we want or what we desire or what we want to do. If they did, we would, you know, annex most of northern Virginia to D.C. and have a new state, Amen. They don't care about us. But Jesus is a king that cares. He's a king that gets involved. Yeah, he got involved in our salvation. But here's the great thing. After he got involved and he saved us and he redeemed us and he took the wrath for us, he still gets involved in our lives. God, the Bible says that we can cast our care upon him. Why? Because he cares for us. When we're struggling, when we have difficulties, we have trials and temptations and burdens and problems. There are people on earth we can go to to, to kind of, you know, listen to us. We all need someone we, that can listen to us, that we can vent to. We all need someone that we can, we can call up. We can go to coffee. And sometimes we don't want them to fix anything. We just want them to listen to, to how bad things are. And that's fine. We can complain all we want to. And people need somebody to complain to. But here's the thing. If you complain to Jesus, and the Bible tells us we can pour our complaint to God. The Bible says that we can, we can and when it, in the Psalms when it says pour your complaint to God, it literally means vomit it out. It means you can go to God and say, God, my life is terrible, and I don't think it's fair, and I don't like it, here's why, here's what's going on. And we can just pour our complaint to God, and God is our king who cares about what's going on, who hears what's going on, and gets involved to fix what's going on. Now, he may not fix it the way we want to, but he always fixes it. He is a king who gets involved. He does for us what we can never do. Not only is he a king that gets involved, but number two, he is a champion that saves. Look at verse number 10. <coughs> for it became him for whom are all things and by whom are all things in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. And skip down to verse 14. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Verse 10 says that he is the captain of our salvation. The Greek word there means founder, leader, and champion. 
He is the champion of our salvation. He returns he returns to this image in verses 14 through 15. Sometimes during this time, fights between two warring nations were settled with two representatives of the nation. They would come together and instead of, you know, it wasn't an invading thing. It was basically two kings had a disagreement and their armies would meet on the battlefield and they would decide instead of, you know, having thousands of people slaughtered, Let's just have two people, one champion from each side, come together, fight it out to the death, and whoever wins, that king is the victor. And that way, only one person had to die, not thousands of people had to die. We see this in the Old Testament story between the battle of the Philistines and Israel. When Israel and the Philistines are, are lined up side by side, and Goliath every day would come out and would taunt Israel. He was their champion. He was the one who was going to fight on behalf of all the Philistines. And he just said, hey, send me someone to fight for us. Because remember what he said, if he beats me, we'll be your slaves. But if I beat him, you're going to be our slaves. So they were saying, let's just have two guys duke it out to the death. And whoever wins, that person wins the victory for the entire team. And so G Jesus fought death and sin on our behalf, and he defeated them. He was our champion. He fought for us, and he won the victory. Death and hell and sin were the Goliath that he was facing. And, of course, Goliath, the death and hell and sin, they scared everyone. And Jesus was our David, an unlikely representative that slays the giant while everyone else watches. David was Israel's champion. Jesus is our champion. He won the battle of sin and death and hell. He defeated the giant and delivered us from the one thing that all of humanity is terrified of, and that's death. The fear of death keeps us in captivity. It's terrifying because it seems like it's an end. And if you view death as an end, there's a pressure to accomplish everything you can, to experience everything you can now. And if you miss out on something, it causes bitterness because life is the one shot you have to make a difference. This life is the one shot you have to do everything you can now, to experience everything you can now. Or you can start to panic because you, you start to notice the aging process. You notice when you get up you know, in the morning, your knees creak a little bit more. Anybody notice on that? So it gets harder and harder to get up in the mornings because you get up and things start popping and you wake up, it's like pop, pop, pop. You know, when I get up, my ankles pop, my knees pop, my toes pop, my back pop, everything pops. And once it pops, like, oh, okay, that feels good. And sometimes it pops wrong. You're like, oh, I'm done for the day. We start to notice we can't do what we used to do. We're not as young as we used to be. We notice the aging process and that causes fear. You notice the gray hairs, the wrinkles, the hurting joints. And some people are terrified of death because they fear the judgment of God. They're obsessed with pleasing him and wondering if they've done enough to earn salvation in heaven. Our champion took the greatest fear, the fear that everyone fears, and defeated it all by himself, and he did it completely. And now that death's power has been defeated... He's taken the fear out of death. Our enemy's greatest weapon was death, and our champion defeated it. That's why the Bible, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? See, because Jesus defeated death, it has no more sting for the believer. For the believer, death isn't the end, it's the beginning. It's the end of pain. 
and suffering and hurt and heartache and disappointment. And it's the beginning of eternity with God and Jesus Christ, our Savior. So death has no more sting. Death has no more victory. Why? Because our champion has won the victory for us. He's a king that gets involved. He's a champion who saves. Third thing that the writer says he is, he is a brother that is not ashamed. Look at verse number 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God and the children which God hath given me. You know, we, we all have that one person in our family that we're embarrassed by. Don't we? If you don't, you're that person in someone's family. We've all got that weird uncle, that crazy little aunt. That's just, I mean, I've got, I've got like five of them in my family. I got a bunch of them that are just weird and crazy. I, she's not going to watch this. Who cares? My mom's sister, dark, she's nuts. She really is. I remember one day when I was a kid, and she's all of, she, especially in the Jehovah's Witness cult, they teach a lot about satanic uh, oppression and everything. Things can be, you know, uh, oppressed by Satan and have demonic presence. And so, and look, I'm not saying they can't. I, I, I am very well aware of demonic influence and you got to be very careful of these things. But they're like, I remember there was this portrait of my grandfather and she brought it to my mom's house and said, this, this picture is possessed by Satan. You keep it. And I'm like, what? if it's possessed by Satan, why are you giving it to us? And she, She's weird. She's crazy. So we, we've got that one person that we're kind of ashamed. It may be a parent, maybe a sibling. Uh, every other sibling has been embarrassed by their younger brothers and sisters at some point in their life. I remember my brother, my oldest brother. Uh, he's much older than me. He's 12 years older than me. And so, you know, when he was going to prom, I was still a little kid, and he'd bring his prom date over. And me and my sister and brother, man, we would just love to just embarrass him and, and, and just get in the way. He, he'd get so mad and want to kill us, but he couldn't because we're so young and mom's got to protect us. But man, I loved embarrassing him. And every older sibling's been embarrassed by their younger Every parent has been embarrassed by their kid at some time or another. When we were on debutation, <laughs> we uh, went to this family camp. And it was up in Pennsylvania, and this, this family camp, I mean, the, the people who ran this family camp, they were very conservative. And so we get there, and we're at this family camp, and we're getting checked in, and I'm trying to talk to the pastor, and I'm trying to get money from this guy. And at the time, uh, we were potty training Connor. And so we're in the middle of a field talking to this pastor. His wife's right there. Me and April are right there. We're talking. All of a sudden, I look down, and Connor has his pants down to his ankles just peeing in the field. I'm like, what in the world are you doing, son? Kids, man, we've all got that one relative. He, he hasn't done that in a couple of days. We've all got that one relative <laughs> that embarrasses us, that we can be ashamed of from time to time. You were the family member that Jesus should have been ashamed of, but he's not. He proudly identifies with you. He claims, he says, that's my brother. That's my sister. Well, man, did you see what they did? I sure did. And I love them. And I'm proud to call them part of my family. After he resurrected, he tells Mary, go tell my brothers that I have raised. Of all the things he could have called them. After, I mean, these are the men who, for three years, he told them, I'm going to die, three days rise again. I'm going to die, three days rise again. I'm going to die, three days rise again. He dies, three days later, they're nowhere to be found. 
I mean, if I was one of the apostles, I'd say this because I know the story. But after he's dead three days later, I'd be at that grave waiting on He said he's coming back. So he's going to be here one day. And even Mary and them, they weren't there to watch him rise. They were there to, to anoint his dead body. But he says, when he, when he rises up, he doesn't say, hey, go tell those morons that didn't believe me. Go tell those cowards that ran away. He goes, no, no, no. Go tell my brothers that I've risen from the dead. He could have called them anything, but he calls them brothers. Why? Because he was not ashamed of them. And he's not ashamed of you. He's a brother that is not ashamed. So he's a king that gets involved. He's a champion who saves a brother that is unashamed. And finally, he's a priest that can help. Look at verse number 17. <coughs> Wherefore, in all things, it behooved him, it's a good word, ain't it? Behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself had suffered being tempted, he is able to secure them that are tempted. This verse can be confusing. Why did Jesus have to suffer to help us? I mean, he, he's God. Couldn't he have helped us without having to suffer? But his temptation, his suffering enabled him to help us more. See, it helps us psychologically because we know when we pray, we are praying to a God that has felt everything we have felt. He knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be tired and hungry. He knows what it's like to weep. He knows what it's like to experience betrayal and rejection from loved ones. He knows what it's like to be stabbed in the back by friends. He understands our pain. He understands our hurt. He understands our temptation. And knowing that he understands helps us because we can talk to someone who knows what we're going through. And since he's experienced everything he's experienced, he can be moved by it. His temptation, his suffering without sinning helps us know that ultimate victory is guaranteed for us. We know that, yes, we struggle with sin now. We struggle with temptation now. But one day, we will not have to struggle anymore. One day, sin will have no more power over us. One day, temptation will never bother us again. One day, we will be completely sinless. One day, we will never have to go to God and say, God, I did it again. Because we'll see him face to face and we'll have complete victory, total victory over sin. Some of us are overwhelmed by our struggles of sin. There's things we, we can't seem to control. Maybe it's an anger issue. Maybe it's a lust issue. Maybe it's a jealousy issue. It's pornography, addiction, something that we struggle with. Christ is seated at the right hand of God, and that shows us one day ultimate victory will be ours. Bible tells us that your guilt, your sin, is as far as the east is from the west. Your, your victory over sin is secure. Jesus is so much more than we could ever ask for. He's a king that gets involved. He's a champion who saves. He's a brother that is unashamed, and he is a priest that can help. That 
is who Jesus is to you. That is who Jesus wants to be for you. And look at how the writer shows how remarkable this is in verse 16. It says, For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Here's a thought that you probably never thought of. We have something the angels are jealous of. They can't be saved. They cannot have the relationship with God that we have. Never can. They cannot experience the fellowship with God that we get to experience. And remember, when Satan fell, one-third of the angels fell with him. Jesus, as God, he could have taken on the form of an angel and died for angels and gave an angel all for salvation, but he didn't. Angels cannot be saved. They cannot be reconciled to God. But we can. We've got something they can never have. First Peter tells us that the angels long to feel the love of God that we have in the gospel. Angels long to be loved like we are. That's what the writer is repeating over and over and over throughout this letter. Whatever you're struggling with, whatever you're battling with, whatever you're going through, look to Jesus because he is better than anything you face. Do you lack courage? Look at Jesus seated on the throne. His opinion of you is the only opinion that matters. He is for you. And the Bible says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Well, my boss doesn't like me. Who cares? Well, my, my family's struggling. My family doesn't. Who cares? If God be for you, who can be against you? Are you overwhelmed with despair? Look to the resurrected Jesus. How can you be in despair when Jesus is your champion? Are you lonely? Your brother and friend will never leave you or forsake you. He will always be with you. Are you discouraged over how sin beats you down? Look to Jesus who has conquered the power of sin. Are you struggling to give up control? Look to Jesus. You can trust him. You can let go and let him have control. Whatever you lack, whatever you need, it is found in our Savior. We, we can trust him. We can find refuge in him. He is all that we need. He is better than anything. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father.